is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, and we are streaming on WVEW.org. It is Sunday, 1 o'clock, and you're listening to Indigo Radio. This is Anna Milani for Indigo, and we are a group of educators seeking to deepen understanding and make connections. You can find us at Indigo Radio on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and download our shows or listen to our podcast on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. Today I'm going to air an interview that I conducted this week with friend of the show, fellow teacher and activist, Dr. Bharat Rathod. Bharat uh, was a student at UMass Amherst, and he spent the hour with me talking about his research around the caste system in India, specifically around Dalits in India and the institutional violence that they experience in higher ed institutions in India, and also talks to us about his work on diversity, educa- uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in the United States and making connections to India. So I'm going to play the interview in its entirety. Thank you so much for joining us today. Bharat, thank you for being with us here on Indigo Radio. And we would love to have you just introduce yourself to our listeners. First of all, thank you so much, Anna and Indigo Radio, for inviting me for your show. My name is Bharat Rathod. Basically, I am from India, from the West Coast, uh, with a prominent state called Gujarat. And uh, I completed my uh, PhD from University of Massachusetts, from College of Education. And my specialization research interest is in uh, caste higher education and equity, diversity, and inclusion framework in higher education area. Uh, I live with my family in Amherst, and currently I'm in the job market. I have been also involved with the community initiative in terms of like working uh, for anti-caste work and also civil rights issue in India as well as in United States. And can you tell us uh, about your research that you did while a PhD student at UMass, if you could lay that out for us? My PhD research is basically focuses on caste issues in Indian higher education, but I also explore the diversity, equity, and inclusion framework from US higher education. So if I give you a little bit of background of my research, so I came in the United States uh, in 2010, and I did my master from School for International Training. Uh, I experienced in, during my master program in uh, at SIT Vermont. I experienced a different kind of uh, educational environment in terms of freedom of speech, academic freedom, and mostly about the focus on social justice orientation uh, in, in terms of the classroom uh, discussion, in terms of the pedagogy, and in terms of the activism, or you can say that action, whether on campus or. Uh, in community, that was quite surprising. And I'm basically coming from India and in a, from a community which is marginalized community, you can say like equivalent to blacks in India. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming from that so-called lower caste background. In India, we call it uh, Dalits. Dalits, Dalit means it's a political identity. It's not a caste identity. The Dalit means like oppressed, but at the same time, a revolutionary uh, kind of connotation it has. I saw the operation of caste and marginalization of caste throughout my life, and still large number of people in India from the Dalit community, they are, I mean, living in a kind of object poverty, 
and they are facing discrimination, particularly in, in, in rural area, in urban area also, but in urban more in subtle and complex way, but in rural more explicit and a day-to-day -day experience. You know? So when I came to the United States and I got opportunity to do my doctor program at UMass Amherst, I realized that I can learn a lot in terms of the American higher education system and particularly on campuses, the kind of uh, education, the kind of you know, narrative, you know, I learned. I'm not trying to say here that American education or American higher education is completely revolutionary and is best and is very good. No, I'm, I'm here trying to say that relative to Indian higher education, I experience American campuses are more liberal, progressive and such, uh, justice oriented. So that uh, really inspired me to take up the caste issues because in India, caste is like part of everyday life, you know. So if I give you a little bit small example, in the United States, you see so many Indians, right? Like very big yeah. Indian diaspora after Chinese. Indian is probably the second largest diasporic group in the United States. But if you see the statistics, you know, official statistics I'm quoting here from Center for Advanced Study on India, that more than 90% of Indians in the United States, they belong to only so-called privileged caste or upper caste from India. And their population is hardly 15%. So 15% population, they constitute 90% of the immigrants in the United States. Uh, this sort of like the overview and the background of my research, but then I try to focus on more on higher education and how the students from this Dalit community, they are facing discrimination in higher education. So if you could take us back from a, and for us here that may not really understand the caste system. Can you provide some context around that and talk also about race and class or oh, sorry, yeah. race yeah. and caste? Yes, yeah, this is a great question. So, okay, let me first explain caste and then I would make a connection between race and caste. Caste system is one of the oldest social stratification uh, system in the world. So caste is basically is a like a hierarchical system in which like there are four broad categories. So on the top, like priest or Brahmin, second is warrior or we call Kshatriya, third is Vaishya, that means trader or business person, and fourth is the labor class, you know, working class people. And this, so this is just a caste system and below the caste system and outside the caste system, that is called Dalits, those who are not part of the caste system. So they are, you can say, outcast people. So this is a broad sort of a categorization and there are tribals also, but they are also not part of the Hindu society. So Dalits and the tribals, they are uh, outcast, so they are stigmatized. And the caste system is at least 2000 year old. So the, the caste psyche and the caste consciousness is pervasive across uh, social dimension, you know, in, in every sphere of life in India. People from particularly Dalits and tribals, they're facing so, so many different kinds of discrimination in terms of interpersonal relationship, in terms of uh, economic sphere, in terms of polit political sphere, and certainly in education. So caste, we can, many Indians, if you ask, you know, they say, oh, caste is irrelevant. You know, caste is a matter of past. But if you see the data, caste is very much present here everywhere. So this is sort of broad definition of caste. And if I connect the caste and race, then recently, though historically, since the 20s and 30s, uh, black scholar uh, and scholar on race, they have been making connection between caste and race. People, they, they use the called caste school of race. They use the caste school of 
school language kind of framework. And uh, in 1950, uh, a very leading scholar called Oliver Fox, he wrote a book, I forgot the name of the book. Uh, okay, I think Caste, Class and something like that. Yeah. And Oliver Cox, he explained that, you know, caste and class, uh, sorry, caste and race is two very separate and distinct identities sociologically and anthropologically. And then recently in 2020, a very another prominent book published by uh, author Isabel Wilkinson and her book, uh, Caste, uh, Origins of Our Discontent. That's like instant hit and in the list of New York bestseller book list. And that book, you know, again started a discourse on caste and uh, race relationship. But Isabel also makes a very clear distinction that the caste and race both are very different anthropologically and sociologically identities. So from that point of view, there is no relation. But if you see the caste and race from the uh, different angle, different angle in the sense of from the axis of marginalization and oppression, then there, is, there are a lot of similarity between caste and race. You know, So she uses the caste as a metaphorical sort of a, a framework to explain how race relation and the people of color, in particular blacks, they experience discrimination in American society. So she explained caste system or caste as an underlying structure, you know, which discriminates and that creates a hierarchy between the people. In her book, she explained the racism in the United States, she explained caste system, the feudal caste system in India, and she also equates caste system in, in case of Jews and, and uh, Nazi era, right? How Jews are being relegated, you know, as a sort of a low, low level or low, low uh, class human being. You know? And now at international level and you know, different platform, uh, particularly scholars and the activists, they are trying to make connection between caste and race on the axis of marginalization and their inhuman treatment. So, and, and again, because I also uh, do some research on caste and race. So on the axis of marginalization and operation, people are start making connection between, between caste and race. So one of the things I wanted you also to further explain is that you had talked about Dalit as a political identity. Can you explain that a little bit more? Okay, so as I said, Dalits are excluded communities. They are mm -hmm. not part of the caste system. And it is uh, supported by the Hindu religious scriptures. You know, there are numerous sort of references you can see in various uh, scripture from Rig Veda to Manuskriti and other scripture where uh, Dalits are treated as or Dalits are equated with the uh, animals uh, or lesser human being. In that regard, the Dalits are, you can say, the outside the caste system. But at the same time, they are very much part of the Hindu society. As I said earlier, there are four categories. But... In each category, there are various caste, subcaste, you know. So there are approximately, there are 4,500 subcaste. People, uh, Dalits, or in, in India, Indian constitution, it is called scheduled caste because that is listed in the schedule of Indian constitution. So official language, official term, like here, we have African-American, right? Uh, but people use black, like Black Lives Matter and kind mm -hmm. of, so be because of black is a kind of assertive identity. Right. So people use black identity as a political identity. So similarly, uh, this so-called lower caste or the Dalits, they use Dalit not as a, as a caste identity, but as a political identity to, to assert and to revolt against the caste system. 
And you talked about going to uh, SIT Graduate Institute, which people around here, of course, are a lot of people would be familiar with as it's uh, located in, in Brattleboro uh, with World Learning, which is where I went also. I didn't realize that you had, what year were you there? Uh, 2010 to 2012. Oh, okay. We just missed each other. I was there yeah. 2007 to 2009. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but um, what I wanted to ask you about that is you talked about having an academic freedom that you, had, you hadn't had um, before. And so I'm wondering if you could describe to us what it was like being in school in India. And if you wanna talk about your own uh, personal journey around that. But I think I also would love to understand Dalits in education system in India too, and what that looks like and what, what they're facing. Yeah. So as I said, relatively, because I, when I explain academic freedom here is, you know, very different. I would say a little more than uh, my previous experience in India in school throughout higher education. So uh, particularly in India, throughout my education, education uh, journey, I never heard or discussed about the caste issue in, in education, either in pedagogy, in classroom or outside the classroom. I'm talking about school as well as particularly higher education. We never discussed or never heard about or never engaged with caste issues because the entire higher education and particularly higher education uh, like elite institution they are controlled by this privileged caste or so quote unquote upper caste people right so for them caste doesn't exist right you never talk about the caste issue and though caste discrimination is banned according to indian constitution and if any people you know make any kind of casteist comment or casteist slur or or they're discriminated on the basis of caste identities or caste lines then people can sue them people can you know go for a legal sort of remedy but in india people don't go for the legal remedy because this institution are completely dominated by higher caste people you know so that's why they never talk about caste and here when i came and when i experienced sit and here at umass People are talking about uh, race. People are criticizing race. We are studying about race. I've seen not only about race, but also about gender or sexual orientation and other issues very, very openly, you know, and nobody offend, get offended or nobody objected. You know, people get engaged as intellectual discussion. They oppose their ideas, but not in terms of personal opposition, you know, mm -hmm. like outside the classroom, people might get involved into a verbal fight or physical fight. I never experienced that. And in India, you know, if there are many incidents happened in past 10 years or 20 years or so that if people talk about caste outside the classroom or in the classroom, they're met with kind of violence or intimidation and, and literally people face, you know, consequences. And if you see the data in last 10 years or so, there are many Dalit students, you know, they experience severe caste discrimination. The kind of caste discrimination they they committed suicide and this is kind of a big issue in india so i'll give a small example in 2016 a leading dalit scholar from a premier institution in south asia uh, sorry south india uh he committed suicide because he was raising issue of caste and caste-based discrimination in their institution so the whole institution you know they put him in a kind of um, situation where he didn't have any space, you know, he was like mentally kind of harassed and economically harassed, academically harassed. So at the last he committed suicide. 
and after his suicide there was a lot of protest a lot of uh, political uh, pressure you know built on the government and the government had to announce just superficially announce that uh, we will create a policy to support to to support the socially disadvantaged communities without using the caste word you know so this is sort of institutionalization of caste in in indian higher education and what was the second point sorry i forgot i mean you've explained it i was i was trying to get kind of a picture of what um it looks like in india i had read this paper of yours from um, 2020 which is great the caste conflicts on campuses and for us to understand what that looks like and yeah the story of that young man who had killed himself um, is devastating and how i i mean i think that you explain that well that it, it they say that they're i mean there's always this kind of front facing oh everyone's welcome but it seems like from what in your writing and learning about it that it's quite institutionalized um this harassment and the violence and stigmatization are talking about how diversity initiatives within the U.S. and on U.S. campuses, that they could have lessons for um, universities in India. Is that right? And around this particular issue. So if you could talk about that a little bit, that would be great. Sure, sure. So before I come to your, your question, let, let me explain a little bit background about that, why I use a diversity framework in terms of uh, what lesson we can learn from U.S. education system. In U.S. Um, society or in U.S., we uh, have affirmative action. So affirmative action is not part of the constitution. Affirmative action is kind of a suggestive measures, you know, uh, by society and various institutions, they practice, right? Uh, according to affirmative action, all kind of people are getting um, getting representation and the place in higher education as well as in job, right? But if you see in India, affirmative action, India, that is called quota policy, quota that means the reserved number of seats in educational institution as well as as well as in in uh, employment right and other uh, government or public offices you know in various categories so but mostly in these two area education and employment there is a reserved quota 
in the constitution, right? So for the Dalits or scheduled caste, it is something broadly around 14% according to their population. And for the tribals or, or you can say native people or Aboriginal people, their quota is around seven, seven and a half percent. So roughly around for these two categories, there are 21% uh, quota reserved in higher education and in jobs. I will stick to higher education here only because my research focuses on higher education. Uh, so in higher education, because of the quota, affirmative action policy, these students from Dalit background and, and tribal background or Aboriginal background, they come to a higher education, right? Because of the quota, not because of, of, of a higher, a higher education, they want to give a representation and give an entry to these marginalized communities. Because that's a mandatory kind of, you know, uh, hammer, right? So these students come to higher education, particularly in elite institution, but what happens, the whole, as I said earlier, the whole institution is controlled by these privileged caste people from top to level, from the leadership to faculty to, to the staff and certainly a large number of student group also. So what happens, they feel that higher education is their domain because since centuries or the millennia, uh, this so-called higher caste people, they only had a right to get education, okay, according to the uh, caste norm, according to Hindu religious scripture and the values, right? So they only had education right. So for Dalits and tribals, oh, they are born for just a labor work to serve the society, to serve the upper caste. So what happens, they feel that higher education is their domain, their property. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm using the word property because that's a precise, the kind of attitude you know they have in their, their practice. So they believe that higher education is their, their property, their domain. So when the Dalits and tribal students come to higher education, they feel that, okay, they are, they are encroaching our space. You know, they are less meritocratic. So they are not welcome. And they try to push them out, push, push them away from higher education. You know, So they can maintain, maintain the control because higher education is not just about education. We know that in 21st century, in a knowledge economy, higher education is the, is the most prominent tool you know, to acquire decision-making positions and to capture the market economy. These higher caste people, those who already have the, the prejudices and stereotype against Dalits and tribals, and on the top of the affront reaction, the another stigma adds onto that with the caste uh, stigma. So they're facing all kinds of discrimination, and, and that is why a large number of Dalit and tribal students, they cannot they get enrollment in higher education, but they could not continue their study. As I said, you know, there are many students who commit suicide or drop out or they have all kinds of issues, okay? And don't forget that these students, large number of students, uh, based on the data I'm saying, this is not my personal opinion. There are numerous studies uh, available. And it says that, you know, these students, Dalit and tribal students, they're coming from the low socioeconomic strata. They're coming from the poor kind of education. They're mostly coming from the regional medium school, so not English mediums. So overall, their cultural capital, economic capital, and the social political capital is low compared to this higher caste student. So they certainly they face certain kind of challenges, right? In, in academic work and in social relations and so on and so forth. So instead of supporting them, so what I learned from American education system that these students need a support from institution, you know, in terms of the economic support, in terms of the academic support, language support, and other kind of social, uh, social and mental support. So they are not getting support. Instead of that, they are getting a, getting sort of a discrimination, stereotype, you know, exclusion in mm -hmm. Indian higher education. 
So when I saw here in higher education in US, uh, particularly at UMass campus, I saw that large number of students, they are getting support. I'm not saying all students are getting support. I'm not trying to say here that American higher education is very liberal and progressive and very inclusive. That is not my point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to say that compared to Indian higher education, the kind of support, the kind of uh, freedom, um, the, the kind of inclusion uh, people of uh, color and particularly black students, you know, getting is significant, different and far better than the Dalits and tribal in India. That's really helpful. I think that you laying out what that looks like in India, because I keep on, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, there are such parallels to U.S. universities. For instance, I work at Clark University right now in Worcester, which is a predominantly white institution. And I, yeah. I think, and, you know, there's a, there's a small proportion of what we call first generation students, yeah. um, students of color. There's a definitely an international uh, population, small population of students. And so I was thinking as you were talking about the parallel of power dynamics of the privileged class or the ruling class holding power of a university. Yeah, if you could go into, I hear what you're saying is that, right, the American system, there's all there are still all these power relations. What you're trying to say if I'm correct, is that there are initiatives though that you've seen that in comparison to the universities in India allow for maybe more freedom of speech or some helpful initiatives that are helping students. So I think if you could explain that more and what would be helpful or what you could see taken into the context in India. Um, and then we can talk about, I think in general, how we democratize education everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, as I said earlier that, you know, uh, in US education system, what I see is like a lot of progressive and social justice oriented policies, you know, they have, they have introduced and they started, you know, introducing and embracing that. And, uh, particularly students, uh, from color and black students, I could see a large number of people. And if you see the research, because my research also talks about how diversity, equity, and inclusion framework, you know, it started from somewhere in the 80s and it, it developed as a policy. And higher education is the first institution in the in the society uh, which embraced equity, diversity, and inclusion framework. So comparing to the American higher education, in, in Indian higher education, I don't see uh, any, any kind of initiative uh, around um, social justice or liberal progressive ideas, you know. So st students from Dalit and, and tribal community, they're consistently facing a problem, okay. And the most significant problem, or I would say the biggest problem in Indian higher education system is that whenever any incident of caste discrimination, you know, appears in public domain, though most of them do not appear in public domain, if any appears, suppose a big incident, if some com student committed suicide and so on and so forth, then certainly it comes in a public domain. So if any incident come in public domain, so, so the first and the standard response of Indian higher education system or university is that, oh, this is the individual problem. This is not a systemic problem. So what happens, you know, any caste-based discrimination, any caste-based issue, they individualize it. They do not accept as a systemic problem. So what happens when you individualize any problem, then it narrowed down to two individual or two group. It is not a systemic issue. So Indian higher education has been consistently uh, using the same framework and same, same sort of a narrative that, okay, 
it's an individual problem between two people or two groups. This is nothing to do with an institution. So they, they do not acknowledge at the first place that caste is an institutional problem. Caste is a systemic problem. Okay, caste is a, a kind of a framework which, which uh, promotes systemic exclusion of Dalit students. And so unless and until you recognize it, this is an institutional problem or systemic problem, you cannot find a solution. On the contrary, if you see the American education system in late uh, 70s and 80s, you know, when, so first affirmative action introduced in, in, in 60s, late 60s, in 67, 68, right? Right after the civil rights. So what happens uh, that right after that so-called uh, this privileged community, white community, they, they felt that an affirmative action is kind of uh, uh, challenging their, their dominance over society, you know, their, their privilege. So they started using the legal um, sort of remedy and legal framework you know, to struck down their photo action. So because of that kind of attitude by the majoritarian uh, white population and particularly white racist organization individuals, the people, particularly in a black community and people of color and scholars, they figure out that, okay, they need to find out a new solution or the framework. So critical race theory started to evolve in the late 70s. Critical race theory first started from uh, legal framework, how they use a legal framework, you know, civil rights framework for the uh, for the civil rights of the people of color and black particularly. So from that, they developed critical race theory and through the critical race theory, they realized that they need to create a different kind of framework. So people of color, they get a representation in, in public institution and the private institutions also across uh, different institutions. So they came up with a diversity uh, framework. So diversity, if you see uh, the research on diversity issue, diversity in any context, you know, specifically uh, diversity in higher education, they treated and, and they evolved a new framework which uh, clearly proposes in a various settings and I would say thousands of research available, like how diversity in terms of different different type of people, different races, uh, different experiences, different background, when they come together in any setting in higher education, particularly, diversity helps in creating new ideas. Diversity uh, diversity increases excellence. Diversity helps in terms of uh, enriching learning experience. They use this diversity as a tool. Uh, to support affirmative action. So that was a significant sort of a break, breakthrough in, in 80s and 90s. But again, what happened in 2000, 2003, University of Michigan, you know, in one of the case, they used diversity as a, one of the uh, sort of intervention to promote race-conscious admission policy enrollment. So the court went to the Supreme Court. And interestingly, uh, in 2003, uh, the various studies, you know, created by the scholar on race and diversity, sorry, race and how diversity, diversity helps in terms of enriching education and why diversity is necessary for American democracy and for the, for the American uh, uh, innovations and technology field. So that was a kind, kind of, you know, watershed moment in health education. And since then, from 2003 onwards, all, I would say, major institutions, they embrace equity, diversity, and inclusion framework in terms of how diversity it can be used to enroll different kinds of people and particularly focus on race or people of color because their representation is low. We need the representation because in a democracy, we need representation from, from all sections of society. And that's how diversity... Uh, helps you know to democratize higher education and education in, in short
And if you see the democratization of higher education concept in 20s, particularly John Dewey was a, was mm. a prominent figure in democratic education. And it is a two big um, uh, sort of a pillar. One pillar is that democratic education, that means the education which promotes each learner's ability to learn different things because all learners do not learn from the same way, right? So how we can promote different kind of pedagogy and different pace of learning, okay? That's a one aspect more like a pedagogical and technical aspect. The other democratization of education is the aspect about the social justice orientation, liberal progressive social justice oriented education system and policy where marginalized group or vulnerable group or excluded group, you know, they get enrollment, they get access, okay, they get the support, and they also get a sort of a voice and space in higher education. So they can, uh, they can learn, they can raise their voice. And a large number of people, if you see in currently compared to the 20 or 30 years ago, you can see large number of people are coming from, from marginalized section, particularly students of color, they are coming. And during uh, my journey here in, in US, in, in UMass, I have seen in last seven, eight years, I could see large, many new uh, people of color and students and uh, they are coming in higher education. So that's a kind of significant difference. But in, in India, you don't see this kind of any initiative. If anyone try to do any kind of research, you know, suppose my research, I talked about my research. I did my research as an undercover researcher. I went to India, I collect my data uh, because uh, caste is a kind of a, a political subject. Okay. So when I went to India in 2018 to collect the data, you know, if I if I would go and say that, okay, I want to start study and collect data on cars, you know, I would have never been able to collect it or I would have faced uh, violence or intimidation from that. So I did my whole research as undercover researcher. So you can see this is the significant difference or anecdotal evidence, you know, how the different in terms of the American health education system and Indian health education system. to me your own involvement of organizing um, on UMass campus, right? Could you tell us a little bit about that and what was the result of that? So uh, I strongly believe that, you know, that any scholar, those who are doing any research, particularly on social issues, social political issues, any, then their research or, or academic work uh, should connect with the real world. I am doing research on caste issues, anti-caste issues, and diversity issues, and race issues. So I try my level best to connect with the real world or, or how we can 
reflect how we can manifest that research on ground in any capacity in any form any setting uh anti caste work we do not recognize caste you know we say like caste itself a divisive and caste is a hierarchical structure because it's not like a race so race is like okay you might be caucasian i might be asian it is not higher or lower the discrimination happens in social scale but race is not itself a hierarchy right but in in caste caste is hierarchical only so brahmin and the kshatriya or 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 the dalit they cannot be equal, they cannot be equal there is no equality in caste brahmin that means brahmin represents top superior right so that's why we call anti caste so we need to uh, annihilate the caste we need abolish the caste system or caste identities you know completely uh, in us as i said there are a lot number of indian uh, people here in the diasporic uh, community so caste is also part of the culture and the value system so here also there are num- uh, studies conducted uh, by equality lab it's a us based non profit in new york and they conducted a research in 2016 and they found that 67% uh, dalits in united states they are facing caste based discrimination subtle or explicit within 67%. the us in the us i'm talking about uh, uh, 67% and 41% students and the faculty in higher education they are experiencing caste based discrimination or harassment based on the caste identities so caste is very much present here also because see as i said caste is 2000 2000 year old disease so it's percolate into the psyche culture language everywhere and most of stu- most of the people from indian and particularly south asian diaspora they are highly educated right one of the i would say most prosperous minority in 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 the states right but they are only academic academically trained so there is a difference between educated mind and academically trained you might be trained in in medical science or you might be trained in a automobile engineering or you might be trained in a carpentry that's a just a training vocational training so if you see any mostly the indians are in it's right so you feel oh these are highly educated people no my dear sorry you need to understand the difference between educated mind or educated person and academically trained or vocationally trained person so most of these people are vocationally trained they are not educated people so what happens they come with this same socio religious and cultural baggage the religion caste and gender and sexual orientation all kind of baggage and nonsense with them that's why they practice the caste naturally for, because for them caste is part of the hindu culture hindu value system pollution and pol- uh, pollution and purity so higher castes are pure and lower castes are polluted so they maintain a diff, uh, distance so in india there is a concept called untouchability okay untouchability that means you cannot touch so suppose and you are my friend okay and uh, if i am coming to your house you are upper caste right so you are pure and you know that my caste i am okay i am a dalit i am lower caste you know? you know we are good friend everything is fine but the socio cultural values the caste dogmas and everything is there in your mind right so it doesn't come out in a normal relationship but when matter comes to suppose touching it comes to the that kind of you know uh, concept relationship and so on then your feudal mind come into play you you are giving me water okay bharat get this water or the food everything but you know that bharat is lower caste so you will keep this glass aside so you might have seen in movies also here so there is an uh, 
uh, movie uh, green book you might have seen the green book movie people mm-hmm. in the beginning in the green book you know the black people come to their house you know this that was the italian family okay and they drink a water so the person you know uh, he threw those glasses into trash the black is like so so called polluted similarly uh, i am polluted you know? so same thing happening here you know very subtly people will not acknowledge oh we don't believe in oh it's a, it's a old stuff it's a village stuff no but if you ask them or if you see the research if you see the research in india and us also there is no different marriage so 95% marriage okay i'm talking 95% marriages in india as well as in us happens only within the caste so to maintain the caste to maintain the caste structure or caste hegemony marriage is the only way so marriage has a, in, in india marriage has a two big purpose to maintain the uh, gender inequality okay a patriarchy and to maintain the caste so we all know that gender is now evolving but the same caste is still there uh, you can check in research in in the us also there is no difference between indian indian people and indians in us in terms of intercaste marriage similar you know that clearly shows that anecdotal evidence that in us also a large number of people they do practice caste but they do not acknowledge it that was a sort of a overall scenario here i was thinking so much about as you're talking of how deeply deeply entrenched because i can definitely make the leap to white supremacy and how uh deeply that is so within our bodies and how it's a continual practice of getting that out um, yeah. i mean the dehumanization of of people and different people around the world is just so awful um yeah. So thank you for sharing that. And you had talked about so um caste is a protected category in the US in US universities, right? And you helped to make that happen at UMass, is that right? Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I forgot that part. So yeah, so how I involved with the anti-caste work. So at UMass uh, we started a campaign I steered the campaign about to give a, a protected category status to caste, you know. So let me let me give some background. So in last 2 3 years some institution they introduced caste as a protected category in the anti discriminatory policy framework in us education so branda is the first one then there is colby university then harvard uh, student graduate student contract they introduced caste as a protected category not in institution but in a student contract and then california system of university is like 23 campuses across the california they they recognize caste as a protected category that's so big one and in umass also recently so far uh, the faculty senate they voted in favor of the motion caste to include in a, as a protected category similarly our graduate uh, employee association uh, they also uh, included caste as a protected category in their in the bylaws and currently uh the uh this motion is pending with the board of trustee and that's the final one so most likely they will also pass the motion in favor of the caste to included so i have been involved with that because the biggest thing is that as i said in us also research research also shows that caste is also prevalent here in us uh so if i give you example so as i said you know i'm here on this campus over the last 8 9 year so there are at least three or four times uh i experienced the subtle caste is sort of a, a slur or comment you know like okay so like in us we can say someone using n word right 
someone using other kind of stuff you know like very very subtle it is very difficult to prove but we know that when when people feel microaggression and when people at receiving end they have a different experience you know at the privileged position you know at a dominant position for for first for for them it's normal oh why are you making it in the first right but at a, at a receiving end people experience that stigma people experience that that pain so i experience here in us so caste is also very uh, present here in uh, in higher education and the biggest thing is that in india currently we know that uh, the right wing government is now they are leading and they are dominating so in any kind of work or research particularly on caste issues they do not entertain okay they do not they do not support even whatever progress we have made over the last 20 year or so they are now you know i mean ruining ruining it in the us education people like me you and other people you know those who want to work on issues of caste and social justice they promote this anti caste work they promote uh, research on caste and race issue they promote you know transnational solidarity so can we make a kind of a uh, coalition or collaboration between black lives matter and the dalit lives matter at a global stage okay can we make a kind of a uh, framework or build a framework where we can include caste into a dissent based discrimination framework at united nation so on and so forth and in american education system once the american academia you know they take it as a issue or take it as a topic you know academic topic then that would be a kind of political you can say political win for the anti caste scholar and scholar like me those who are working on in this area Right. And that leads me to this other question I had around this, this bigger question. You were talking about the um, diversity, equity, inclusion uh, frameworks and initiatives. And so some of those get coded into law. There's different programming initiatives on a university campus. And that, that definitely enriches education. It eases some, some of the college path and university path. uh for individual people and groups of people and i wanted to ask about how both in india and in the us the university is still despite that still in the hands of the ruling class and so where do we go from here around continuing to democratize education both both in india and in the us yeah it's a difficult question actually to answer because going slightly away from higher education so let's first understand like the larger society so we are living in a kind of era in a neoliberal era right and market economy so now across the world in in united states if you see the data from oecd uh, countries united states is the only country in all developed country where inequality is at the highest level highly unequal country in developed country list right and if you see similarly in india india is one of the probably the most unequal country in all developing countries right so both the side so us as a as a oldest democracy india is the largest democracy in both these countries if you see the economic inequalities and the rampant uh, casino capitalism you know or neoliberalism is, is rampant higher education is a part of this neoliberal economy in this higher education if you see uh, i have been i have been looking at us higher education system in last 10 years or so consistently they are prioritizing all uh, i mean all small thing so i'll give you example we have a graduate housing here on campus at umass right 
but now the graduate housing is no more available it's now private so earlier i stayed in a graduate housing you know on a subsidized rate you know so we used to get some some subsidy from the university and state you know to live as a graduate student because you know the graduate student hardly they can live in the, in their whatever earning they are making as a graduate assistant right but now is is private so the rent of the apartment is around 2000 so graduate student cannot they, they hardly make 2000 as an individual now think about as a family as an individual just a couple forget about about child or, or children um, they cannot survive so now uh, only those people come in higher education those who can afford so what what is happening in one way because of the larger political economy less and less people will come in higher education so the privilege and the middle class only they will get access to higher education so in the larger paradigm uh, this is a big problem okay mm-hmm. and probably as a higher education system um, they can do a little bit in terms of giving access and enrollment to the marginalized students and groups but it will this will not continue for long that's the yeah. that's the one thing and the second thing is about whatever the the policies and and different kind of research is coming up that is certainly uh changing the narrative the dominant narrative i'm talking about the us education uh people are contesting and and challenging the uh white supremacy they are they are challenging uh, the race relations and so on and so forth so there is inconsistency in terms of you know students those who are coming in higher education and other side you know the kind of research and literature is being produced that is mainly produced by the students from the Uh, people of color and marginalized communities mm-hmm. so this is the another way noam chomsky said you know says that the political economy they have designed such a way that so less and less people from working class and from marginalized section you know they enter into higher education yeah thank you for that right higher ed is not just by itself it's connected to this larger political economy yeah i wanted to go to um just to switch to talk about your the nonprofit and rise up uh so could you talk to us about what is rise up the the purpose of it and the hopes that you have for it yeah so as i said like i'm trying to make connection consistently or i'm trying to use my research and my academic work into a real world so how i can i can implement how how can i manifest it in a real world to check it whether it do, it is it is working or not so rise up mentoring is a part of the same you can say my research extension that whatever i learn through my research so in my research i have uh, one section of recommendation so my book is coming in december uh, this december which is based on my dissertation and tell us the name of your book yeah it's a dalit academic experience the stories of caste exclusion and assertion in indian higher education right is the title of the book it's very significant section is about recommendation it's like seven page long recommendation and uh, in that section i have mentioned several intervention and measures in terms of how to deal with caste based discrimination and most importantly what kind of support we can provide to dalit and marginalized students and not only dalit but all kind of vulnerable student group including sexual orientation including women students including rural students low income students first generation students so what kind of measures and intervention we can we can do and particularly uh there are models or experiments available from us higher education system so i have quoted all the examples and different programs or from us higher education and the and the some policies and uh, one of the recommendation is about mentoring 
mentoring. So in various places, I have learned that uh, uh, there are different kind of mentoring services and programs available in US, particularly to support underserved communities, right? And so I thought we can do something like that in India because mentoring is a relatively a new new term in India. So there is no institutional mentoring. There is no uh, organization like Big Brother and Big Sister and uh, mentoring.org. And there are, there are many other programs like OK and uh, uh, Black Mentoring, uh, Inc. and kind of there are several initiatives are there. Uh, mainly they focus on underserved communities and Black communities. But in India, we don't have this kind of uh, uh, institutions or organization, even, even concept. So I developed this rise of mentoring and my, this concept focuses only on higher education. So uh, students from Dalit and, and marginalized communities, particularly how to support them. So using online platform like internet is a kind of technology to use them and to connect these young students with the mentors and to help them in terms of achieving their career goals, their academic goals, their professional goals and also using the same online platform to you know, provide different kinds of support, support in terms of uh, academic support, learning support. And, and we know the internet is kind of place where you can learn so many things. I would say every other thing, you know, if you want to learn, that's the kind of initiative I've started. Uh, I'm thinking to uh, develop as a research project also. I'm working on that project, you know, because my main goal is about to institutionalize mentoring in India institutionalized in terms of higher education, community setting, and uh, in other kind of setting. And the mentees, are they coming from, are they coming from anywhere or where are you um, getting people to participate? Yeah, so the broad idea is that, so mentor and mentee, both they, they enroll the profile on website, on platform, and mentee only uh, should be from India because okay. it's focused on on uh, Dalit and tribal students from India, most marginalized, excluded communities from India, and mentor could be anywhere because large number of people, not large number in relatively small, but in aggregate number at large, people like me and you and Janaki and other people are there. Uh, they would love to uh, teach or mentor these young people, you know. So my larger goal is about to challenge the status quo, to challenge the power dynamics right? Because the biggest problem is that still, uh, despite of uh, affirmative action or quota policy, despite of various development programs specifically designed and targeted to Dalit and tribal people, still a large number of people are below poverty line. Still, they are facing discrimination and exclusion. Still, uh, their health indicators, economic indicators are far lower than the the rest of India, rest of population, and particularly from uh, higher caste. So the larger point is that because they are not in a decision-making position, they are not on power centers, you know, their voice is not being heard, okay? They are not able to influence the policy, right? They do not have a share in economy. So my, my idea is that my meta-narrative is that unless and until people from these excluded communities and marginalized communities, they reach to the power center, uh, they cannot change the status quo. They cannot participate in democracy as well as in economy. So that is the thing, you know, to get a higher education, international exposure, and do not forget to work towards uh, your society, mm -hmm. to pay back to society. 
Yeah, great. And and in India, is there a push to, uh, you were talking before about uh, neoliberal economics. I was curious around it for the public schools in India, is there a push to privatize those right now? Oh yeah, that's, uh, so health and education are two sectors since 90s, consistently uh, they face, you know, consequences of neoliberal economic, political economy. So now, since the new, new government, this right-wing Hindu nationalist government came into power uh, from 2014, that pace has significantly increased. Privatization has significantly increased. So large number of schools, particularly public school, you know, shut down and uh, privatization of the public health center and public hospitals in India. So that is the big issue. And that is why if you see the indicate, social indicators, you know, it consistently going down in, in hunger index, you know, India is India is below than Pakistan and in even Bangladesh and Nepal. And don't forget, it's the fifth largest economy. We have the uh, third or fourth uh, largest dollar billionaire in India. And if you see the data, just one data will give you give a complete picture that in a pandemic, according to official data from the state, from the Indian government, Indian government uh, has been providing uh, food ration to 800 million people, which is approximately 75 percent, 75 percent population of India. So you can imagine 75 percent population are not able to eat two meal a day. This is official data. So they are taking pride that oh we are providing you know food to 800 million, million people, but those idiots don't understand that this is a shameful thing. This is the one of the largest economy and one has the largest number of dollar billionaire, right? And so-called tiger economy, and they aspire to be a global superpower and aspire to get a seat in a United Security Council. And other side, your 75% uh, population uh, is not able to get a two meal. And, so, and again, if I put into the number, as I said, 800 million people, 800 million people, that means uh, United States and Europe put together that also not 800 million people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It is shameful. And I, I think there's such parallels to the U.S. too. It's shameful that people are living in tent cities or not getting food. I mean, it is. It's criminal. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to just ask you as we close here, this has been really, really great, Bharat. And I, I've learned a lot. And I, I was wondering if there's either anything that you would like to add that I didn't get at, or if you have any thoughts for us here in the U.S. to, you know, what do we need to keep keep doing to democratize education, to humanize the world, humanize each other? Do you have any last thoughts on that? Throughout my this conversation, I've been trying to make connection between India and U.S., you know, the two biggest country, largest democracy, highly unequal countries, and so on and so forth. And politically also, U.S. has, in 2016, you know, turned to right direction, you know, Trump uh, administration and so on and so forth. And currently, scenario is more or less similar. In India, we have a right-wing Hindu nationalist government. So my message or my my point, you know, to, to think about is, a, as a people, we need to understand that, you know, that whatever the economic distress or whatever the hardship we are facing, you know, that is not because of um, immigrants, not because of uh, X, Y, Z. You know, the larger thing is that the, the kind of political economy going towards right in this privatization and neoliberal project and you know, ad- advancing, that is a big culprit. You know, 
we need to stand up you know for the most marginalized in our community the kind of narrative has built by the this right wing ideology uh, that okay these people are responsible for for our jobs we are not getting jobs because jobs are going in china but who is taking your job in china this corporate class we need to ask this question we need, we need to ask this question that, okay trump is saying that okay we will build a, a wall and border but we need to ask the question that who is creating a, a chaos or who destabilize those countries in latin american countries we need to ask this 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 bigger question i would say think in terms of like as a community and uh, how we can i mean if you think about this a democratic country then we need to think democracy as an everyday sort of practice not democracy just in terms of the one time electoral sort of activity democracy is a everyday practice we need to participate in a in a local government in a local decision making stuff and kind of stuff and that is the way forward otherwise i don't know the current situation is, is really very dire and economic distress will increase and many scholars and and economists are saying that the big bubble big economic crisis is is looming overhead i don't know when it will struck probably within couple of months or, or within a year or so it would be catastrophic so we need to support person like a bernie sander and other liberal progressive people you know those who can bring this this narrative and neoliberal project otherwise is it is it is very scary mm. yeah i agree with you Bharat, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. And um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really like talking with you and um, have a great day. போர் அடிக்குது போராடலாம் வாங்க தோழ யார் அடுத்தது சூப்பர் ஸ்டார் பாரு தோழ ஊர் கிடக்குது நமக்கு என்ன வாங்க தோழ ஹேஷ்டாக் திருக்குறள் அது என்ன தோழ ஹேஷ்டாக் திருக்குறள் அப்படின்னா பெட்ரோல் விலை ஏறி போனா என்ன தோழ கட்டும் வரி கூடி போனா என்ன தோழ முட்டால் ஒரு மன்னரான என்ன தோழ என்ன தோழ சொல்லு தோழ சொல்லு தோழ முட்டால் ஒரு மன்னரான என்ன தோழ என்ன தோழ சொல்லு தோழ சொல்லு தோழ முட்ட போண்டா தீஞ்சி போனா என்ன தோழ கள்ள மௌனி கள்ள மௌனி ஊர கூட்டி சத்தம் போடும் கள்ள மௌனி கள்ள மௌனி கள்ள மௌனி தொந்த தண்ணி பத்த பேச்சும் கள்ள மௌனி கள்ள மௌனி கள்ள மௌனி